0: Welcome to the Be Here Now Guest Podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate.
1: So it's certainly been... Um Quite a journey, the whole parenting (laughs) adventure, and um, people who have further along in the parenting adventure uh, tell me it never ends. So I'm still, you know, trying to understand it, and um, seems like it's always something new to understand and new to figure out. And it certainly was uh, when I, you know, I I did about 10 years of Buddhist monastic practice fairly intensely um, before I had kids. And um, so that was, in some ways, it was nice and prepared the ground for practicing as a parent, which turned out to be much more challenging for me than being a monastic And uh, challenging, challenge, you know, because of my particular disposition or something, Um, monastic life was pretty wonderful. And uh, uh, family life uh, brought much more to the surface in my mind, my heart, of my attachments and my expectations and ways in which I live that were not maybe, that needed to be looked at and examined. So I'm very grateful for the practice of being a parent um, I feel like I'm a much better person going through it and I hope that that journey and path of being a parent continues to uh, bring out, I don't know, be careful how we say it, um, I hope that it uh, continues to uh, show me the worst in me <laughs> but bring out the best. And uh, show me what's difficult because I want to face it and deal with it. When I was ordained as a... <clears throat> uh, I was ordained for a while as a Zen monk. And I didn't have much uh, relationship to ritual before that ceremony. And I just thought, oh, it was just a ceremony. And I didn't really think much about it. I was going to become... I knew I wanted to be a monk. And um, so I went through this ritual somewhat elaborate ritual, shaving heads and putting on robes. And after the ritual, um, uh, it was, really was a, a, a rite of passage for me. And uh, now I was much more of a public person, because if you dress in monastic robes and have a shaved head, uh, you're a public person. I mean, People recognize you for what you are, and you stand out. And, and um, it was kind of dramatic for me, because... Um, if I was out in the public um, before I was ordained if, uh, if I was noticed people mostly moved away um, but, um, or they didn't notice me at all but once I was ordained uh, it was a beautiful thing because uh, you become kind of I think people just assume that you're now you belong to everyone <laughs> and uh, all these people who normally would never have talked to me Uh, came up and found me, you know, sitting on the bus stop, waiting for the bus, and people would sit down next to me and unload their life and share with me. It was quite something. So instead of being a public person for, uh, you know, what you're about, what your intention is, kind of public. And so I, um, but the consequences of that was that um, uh, the whole ordination thing and being public and all that, I became much more sensitive to my shortcomings, than I had before, and my shortcomings that I had stood out and highlight much stronger. And you would think that maybe that's painful or difficult to see your shortcomings more than you would normally. Um, But because of the ordination, uh, now I understood myself metaphorically to be a child of the Buddha. And because I was a child of the Buddha, it was more okay to have shortcomings, and I love this combination of seeing them more clearly and being more relaxed and open and accepting of myself uh, compassionate for having them. It wasn't so I can merrily go along having shortcomings and acting in the world that way. But uh, I was motivated to practice with it and work with it and refine myself and develop myself so those shortcomings are no longer there, shortcomings. But there was this wonderful combination of seeing my shortcomings more uh, clearly, and having the 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 generosity of spirit to hold it all in a kind way towards myself, which uh, I just found so precious and helpful as I went along and so then I became a parent, and turned out I had more shortcomings <laughs> and uh, and so what I'd learned about holding it in a generous, open way and being you know, okay in a certain way, to be like, this is the material I have to work with, and not to make it diff- more difficult than it had to be, was very helpful for me as a parent. And there was a lot of surprises for me in being a parent. And uh, One of them, you know, maybe you know, I'm pretty naive in many ways, and didn't know a lot about certain parts of the world. And so this idea of being parenting, learning, learning the connection to a parent to a child, was kind of a discovery for me. And I was, uh, I was surprised at how strong the bond was. Um, I mean, I should have known. I guess I, maybe, I, maybe I did intellectually. But um, to really experience it and to feel that the strong connectivity and the, and the kind of um, intuitive lines of communication, intuitive lines of caring and concern and mutuality was a great thing. You know, it was quite, quite something to see. And, um, and I got, you know, and and, uh, and it comes along with a sense of responsibility to, you know, now I have to care for this person and then figure out what those lines of responsibilities are when we step forward to offer care and support and when we step back and don't offer it. And it seems like that generally kind of changes all the time as they grow up. And um, because at some point I wasn't cleaning their bottoms anymore, you know, the, But they could do it for themselves. I wasn't feeding them anymore, and they could do it themselves, and you know, all these things. Right, they started doing more and more, and at some point, uh, they left the house alone. You know, (laughs) what? (laughs) Down the street they went, and um, at some point they got in the car and left, and uh, you know, so so where's where is the independence and where is the responsibility? It's constantly shifting. So I found it, you know, a constant kind of. Reflection to consider, to think about, to figure out where the line between my my responsibility and not my responsibility, and when to offer them the independence, when to recognize their interdependence, and continue with that, when to recognize my responsibility, and you know, to dance. It's a constant puzzle to figure out. A precious moment for me personally was when my son, my older son, was maybe he was about five. And he came out of the bathroom, he spent some time in there, with, and he came out of his bathroom and um, dressed and his hair combed in a way that I'd never seen before in, on him. I'd never seen him so you know concerned with how he is. And um, and uh, and I don't know where he got this idea, where, where he dreamt up how to dress this way, but in my mind he was dressed like a um, 19s, Seventies Disco King (laughs) And uh, I didn't know Where he got those pants And those shirts And and the gold necklace And the hair was kind of You know Up and It was quite remarkable And um, And having been uh, During the seventies A hippie You know And a monk And This was not my idea Of what My kid was going to grow up to become (laughs) So, so i could feel inside this thought oh no <laughs> it's downhill from here this is like a you know <laughs> this this shouldn't be you know those thoughts went through my mind and uh, and at the same time i thought well, who am i to say who this person is supposed to become and uh, and you know he's found himself this and you know I, I i'm not in charge of kind of shaping him in terms of this kind of personality, this kind of way of being in the world, and, and I, 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 it's a mystery to me who he's supposed to become, who he's supposed to individuate and actualize actually who he is, and and um, and it just, oh, here's it, this is a time to give him his freedom, his independence, allow it to be, not shape him in my image, but to recognize him, he's going to have his own image, his own way of being. And uh, it may be pretty innocuous five-year-old dressed up as a, you know, particular way that you know it's I think it just lasted for probably 10 minutes the whole thing so but you know what you know but what it went through me my mind was kind of very instructive and very a little bit both challenging and inspiring this idea of of being careful to allow each person to kind of become who they're supposed to become or who they can become or something how do we do that in a way that supports them and is right for them um and then part of the challenge for me was that um, also is watching my, especially my older, my older one grow up, I think maybe I was all fresh then, um, was um, how much um, it reawoke the uh, sufferings that I had as a child, how it was for me to go to school and be ostracized, how it was for me to kind of move to a new country and not be included and have friends who were kind of mean or difficult or or uncaring, or all kinds, of, all kinds of things came up, you know. And, um, and so I guess I realized I having, raising a kid that actually they hadn't completely, 100% resolved these kinds of childhood challenges that I had because I started uh, seeing the world, uh, or seeing my son through those eyes, and I started worrying that he was going to have the same experiencing, experiences um, because I was kind of biased to see that as being the problem's and then learning to see, I have to be careful with this. This is my issue, and that's not my my son's issue. And so I have to be very careful here to not kind of overparent, and maybe you know become a self fulfilling prophecy by kind of trying to kind of overcare for that, make sure those things don't happen to my child, and in doing that create a kind of kind of awkward or difficult situation where uh, he gets shaped by my 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 past, and then, My difficulties but then how do but also my my own difficulties in the past also help with the empathy and care so how does how does my empathy how's it when is it clean my when is it appropriate when do i still see into the filter inappropriately of my own background uh, where it doesn't help to see it that way and point is to kind of step out of the way and really try to see the child as the child is not you know my imagination of what might be happening. So, um, um, so this constant process of reflection, constant process of mindfulness, of paying attention—what's going on here? What's happening with me? And and I feel so grateful to the mindfulness practice that I've learned that uh, it's kind of second nature to keep looking at a thought when it arises and and question it and say, "Oh, it's just a thought." As opposed to have a thought arise, not to know it's arising, and then that thought becomes the truth. I see someone, I see my son, I see the people around me, and I have an idea, a bias, assumption, expectation, and um, and if I don't see those things arise, then uh, it's too easy to kind of just that's the, you know, it's just a invisible filter that I operate with. But because of the mindfulness practice, it's kind of like come you know fairly common habit or practice to notice the arising of a thought, to notice the arising of an emotion and to question it, Uh, not question it in a bad way, just to, um, just what is this? You know, oh, this is a thought. It's not necessarily a truth. It's not necessarily, you know, uh, what has to be or what is. And so then to give a second look at what's going on, to, to try to look a kind of Around the thought, around the belief, around the expectation. What else is going on here? What's really true? Or or to give a second look at the thought that arises. Is this a useful thought? Is it a helpful thought? And I think this has been invaluable for me as a parent to have this uh, constant kind of presence of mind to kind of question myself and look and wonder and and see. And I think that I would have made a lot of mistakes, a lot more mistakes as a parent, if I had uh, just acted on whatever thought impulse belief that, you know, when it arose. So this ability to see things arise is one of the really fundamental um, features or goals of uh, mindfulness practice. Not just to see things as they are, but to see them when they arise, when they first appear. And then the corollary of that is also notice when they pass, when they, you know, when a thought arises and a thought passes something very powerful about seeing um, uh, a thought, a feeling, an emotion, a response, a suffering, see it also pass. Even if it's momentarily, it's there for a little bit, it goes away for a little bit, it rises a little bit, it goes away a little bit. Um, The inconstancy of it. This is one of the really key, um, I think the fundamental insight of insight meditation is to see the arising and passing of phenomena. And I think it gives a phenomenal power in our life to be able to see this because in the gap between uh, when something passes, ceases, and it arises again, uh, there's freedom to be found. There's choice to be found. There's, uh, there's an a, a opportunity to look at the bigger picture and try to understand better what is this? Is this a useful thought? Is this a useful feeling? Is it an appropriate one? So that now I have to kind of hold uh, spaciously or qu- quantumously? Uh, and not get caught in the grip of it just allow it to be there and not be influenced by it or is this a thought or an emotion or feeling that this is oh this is right i should ride this one and stay with it and use it as important important kind of way of connect to my family and my, my. So, so the mindfulness practice is being a practice of really being able to speak, be stable enough in the awareness to see when things arise it's very very helpful The um, um the other thing that I um, was surprised for me when I started being a parent was uh, I didn't have as many personal resources to, to manage myself as I thought. Um, I had thought I could just kind of go into any situation at all and just kind of manage with my energy levels, with my wisdom, with my you know, just uh, I, I, was, I thought I had I was pretty resilient. I thought I had a lot of stamina, and um, and I was amazed at how exhausting it was to, to be, a, especially a young parent. But and so it, uh, I was a little bit slow to come up to the idea that I had to take care of myself, and um, and in taking care of myself, then I also learned that um, I had to that I counted. And maybe this has to do with my, you know, I grew up in Buddhism in a sense. You know, once I was, I started practicing when I was 20, 19 or 20. And I had kids when I was started. I was 44. So that was a long time, right, kind of to grow up somehow in Buddhism. And um, so one of the things that I had learned to do uh, was to let go. And that's a, a big, big feature of Buddhist practice is letting go, letting go of attachments and clinging. And in many ways, I'd gotten pretty good at it. And then I had to learn <clears throat> not to do it. And uh, around the time they became a parent, I had to learn not to let go. Because um, uh, it turned out, that as the kids got older, that my tendency was just to let go of my own needs and for the sake of the children. You know, whatever, you know, whatever they needed, whatever. But it became clear at some point that caring for the children... For, take care of their needs 100% and not take care of my needs um, was uh, became lopsided, became somehow unhealthy actually. It was a bad role model for them if they were if the whole world was focused on them and their well-being and that they had to learn that they're part of a family unit and that the greater good for the family involves uh, what's what's uh, you know everyone's well-being. And so something so I had to kind of learn, not to let go of my needs or my things that were important for me or who I was, but actually uh, uh, help the family unit understand that we're all in it together and it has to be compromise, give and take. It's not all, you can't just have whatever you want. You have to kind of, you know, the kid has to know, learn how to adopt and take care of each other. And it, certainly for me, it helped a lot to learn this whole lesson when we had a second child, and uh, and then it became really clear with the second child how much the other one, the first one, uh, had uh, had you know not learned how to work as a family unit. And so, you know, I think we had a, we had a second child early enough that um, I think he kind of learned the started to learn the lesson, somewhat. <laughs> and um, but that was a big big thing for me as a Buddha, coming out of my Buddhism. So. And I heard my teachers, and probably I—I'd started, started teaching before I was a, <clears throat> a parent—naively um, uh, talk about letting go, just let go. You know, I'm quite embarrassed by some of the advice I gave people when I was a new teacher. It's easy, just let go. <laughs> and um, so, not only is it not easy to let go, sometimes it's not appropriate to let go. And so, how do we find? The balance, how we find when the right time is. and um, But what, what I can say is that um, sometimes it's certainly not appropriate to let go. Some things are, we should stay, keep close at hand and do. But it's always appropriate to hold what's going on with an open hand or an open heart, as opposed to a closed hand or a closed heart. And the image, symbolic, representative image of a, of a fist that holds tight versus a hand that's open is a very powerful image. And so, so the idea of, of um, holding, you know, letting go, I think um, sometimes a uh, more useful idea is, because sometimes the idea of letting go, people think this. <clears throat> but, uh, uh, let it, you, know, let, you know, sometimes the whole movement can be not, not dropping it, but just like this. So we're still holding it, but we held, hold it with an open hand. And uh, so we're still caring for it, taking care of it, but we're like not gripping it, and holding it tight. And so I think that's always useful. And so that's you know part of the, the art or part of the... Uh, and it's certainly been my kind of constant exploration as a parent is how to be a parent with, this, with an open hand or an open heart. Um, so not to grip, not to hold tight, but also not to drop. How to hold the responsibility of being parent with this, with some sense of <coughs> e- e- ease or openness or lightness. And um, and a big thing for me has been to try to understand um, how to, um, um, you know, when not to be involved, when to step in, and when to allow the child to be alone, uh, when to allow a child to cry and went to and leave them alone in the crying, and went to, um, as soon as they cry, rush in and take care of it immediately. And um, I didn't know when I was in, with, with, a young, with a young child, uh, with a new parent, I had no idea that there were different kinds of crying. I, I thought crying was time to call 911. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like a big deal. But got, I learned to listen to the cries, and it, they were there they were different tones, different different ways, and it was crying because when they were really young, that's the only way they have to communicate. So they communicate a wide range of things through their crying, and so you got to listen. Listen, listen. oh, is that crying? So sometimes it was, you know, it was just oh, let them be, and sometimes it was, let's go take care of, help it out, and that. But that idea, you know goes up through the ages you know when is it when the child is challenged and having a difficulty when it's best to leave them alone when is it best to to um to step in and help and what is the in-between the place where um where you're just there to support and try to be helpful but maybe you don't try to do too much but just offer your presence so one of the uh i have a variety of memories of times with my kids were to, i think for me very precious memories um, many of them probably that they don't remember at all anymore it's kind of a strange thing I, I, i'm really weird that you know and you know that these things were so moving for me i was in tears you know and touched by it and and uh, you know so you know so some pivotal in my life you know and and the, the, the kids were maybe two or three, and they don't remember whatsoever anything <clears> about <throat> it. but you know, I'm left holding it alone. <laughs> but I had one very very um, one of these precious moments was last year. And uh, I hope he remembers my older one. He was 17 then. and um, it had to do with applying for college. And uh, was it was I don't know if uh, it's, it's, uh, so I don't know if that, how many of you have gone through this modern applying to college experience? I, when I went to college in 1972, applying for it was I mean, I, I, I think I just rolled out of bed and applied to college and rolled out of bed and went to college. It's like you know, <laughs> it was a very, diff- very different world back then than it is now and uh, it's kind of very intense it's kind of crazy I think it's wrong the whole thing how it is because it's just so much pressure and, um, and so uh, my son kind of from, from all that I try to do to kind of keep him from buying into all this pressure that's he really was into it and trying to get into school and colleges and, and doing the whole rigmarole that's required these days or can be required and and um, and so um, it kind of built through last summer. He was starting the application. I started it probably in really serious and earnest, this whole application process, um, a year and a half ago. And then by a year ago, it was really starting to build up through the summer, and at least psychologically. And, and, and then once the school year started, semester, then he really had to get serious about writing these college application essays. We didn't, we didn't do essays when I applied to college. <laughs> Uh, you, just, you just filled out a few little forms. And so it was like a whole new thing for me to understand. So he was writing these essays and it was a big deal. And so there was one school he wanted to go to, which they have I, I didn't know they had, I don't think it's a whole world, right? It's all new to me. The idea of early admission. So you can apply early to one place and if they, uh, there's different ways of doing it, but I guess if you get accepted, you have to go there. And they'll accept you early which means you don't have to send any applications to anybody else, any other colleges. So you save a lot of time and money. So he really wanted to go to this college. This was like he lived for it. So the week before it was due, November 1st, he was um, just working and working and working on his essays and everything he had to do and schoolwork was put aside and mean, he just somehow it was it was pretty tense at home as he was working at this. And it was due Sunday night, the applications. So Saturday morning, I said, Are you sure you have the deadline right? Are you sure it's Sunday? You sure you have the time right? Yes, I'm sure. And um, so, okay. So anyway, I went on the website to check, double check. And sure enough, midnight, Sunday night. That's what it said. So, um, so he was working all day Sunday, and you know, this was like a big deal. Many, many months of you know, stress and effort and going into this. And then Sunday um, at 9.25 in the evening, he pushes the apply button. It's all, 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 the, all the applications done apply. He gets a message back saying, you're too late. The deadline just passed. 12 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Because it was a California school. So he, he was just devastated. And um, so we tried to talk about it and what's going on and what to do. And so I, you know, I think about 11 o'clock at night, he, um, it really kind of hit him. And, uh, and, uh, and then we had this very precious father-son time. I mean, it sounds heartbreaking, but maybe it was like very, you know, and maybe it's the last time I'll get a chance to do this with him. Uh, he was sobbing on the sofa on the couch, and so I went and sat with him and put my arms around him, you know, which I, you know, and really tender, kind of like we were when like, he was a little, you know, toddler or something. And I thought, oh, this is a this is a chance, this is an opportunity, really. I mean, I, I was heartbroken too for him, but for this kind of close father son time and really being together and and so I talked him through it and breathed breathed with his suffering and got him to kind of he was hyperventilating not just sobbing so getting him to calm down and to settle and and to be there with him and say the things that were supportive and how to be with his experience and then I said let's go for a walk so i think at midnight or something or after midnight we went sorry we went for a walk uh, in the in the dark down our street. And uh, so we were talking and putting it all in context and trying to understand it. And, and, um, and then at some point, it was one of those of first little rains. You know, We hadn't rained for a long time right in California. So it, that night, it started raining, raining on us and walking through the streets. And, and by the time we came home, around 1.30 or so, one o'clock at night, um, I, we were laughing. And um, so that was nice. And so then 1.30, we came home, and I said, okay, let's go to bed. And then he said, "No, now I have to, now I have to start my homework. <laughs> what? Because <laughs> he'd put it off, right? Because he was in his college application. So he, I don't know what time he went to bed. I went to bed. And, um, and so then um, I called the college the next morning and, uh, to talk to the admissions people what happened. And there was a message on the voicemail message. It says, "We know there was a problem with the application um, now because the, the 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 organization that processes all the applications they're on the East Coast, but on their California website it said midnight. We know there was a problem. We've extended the deadline one day. So then he applied. So, but the way I tell you all the story. I tell you the story um, because of. Um, um, what was important about the whole event? I mean, it's kind of you know, heartbreaking. It was painful for me as a parent, painful for him, for sure, harder for him than for me. But it, I, I saw it as a really precious time for us to bond and connect. And there was so much care and, and tenderness and love that in that exchange and going for a walk in the rain and being together that... Um, You know, I hope that this is a memory that he keeps for his life. I think it was, I'll keep it for my my lifetime. To have those moments with him and work through this and come to the other side and hold each other and tender and loving and warm and and for him to hopefully feel a parental care and love in this kind of moments of crisis. Um, You know, maybe, I'd like to believe that maybe it was a very important formative experience that if application had gone through just the way he wanted to go through, maybe it would have been worse for him because he kind of had bought into this societal pressure to get into school, to college, how important it was, and early admission, and and it just you know, it probably would have just reinforced that, but because of it didn't go through, and his expectations and dreams and everything momentarily were kind of shattered there was a chance for a very different uh, time and period with us, Uh, you know, for us and him to feel something different. And uh, so we never quite know. And uh, so when do we step forward, when do we leave them alone? And so I told the story partly because in sitting on the couch with him sobbing, uh, I I was still negotiating this balance. Is it where do I, how much do I step forward here and try to fix it or help him. How much do I allow? Just accompany him in his difficulty. I felt like I, had to, I needed to accompany him, be his companion through his challenge. But how much do I try to? What, what, what do I do here? And so to find that just a line, the right line, the right balance was the was the art of it, the art of parenting at that time. And I think at that particular one, I think I think I found the right balance because of. Um, you know, by the end of it, but it took about two hours the whole process. I think we were laughing together, and and we had spent all this time kind of holding each other, and and it was very tender. So this art of uh, <clears throat> of parenting and practice—it's never. It seems like it's always, as far as I can tell, at least for me, always trying to figure out how to do it. It's always a practice, and. um And it's one that I kind of, kind of welcome. Um, Sometimes I'm ready for it to be over. And sometimes I wish it's never over. uh, Because I don't see it any different than uh, doing, for me, doing uh, my Buddhist practice, being mindful. Um, I never want that to be over. It's just part of life. It's like breathing. It's like breathing to be a parent. So I hope that um, some of these ideas, some of these thoughts that I offer has some meaning for you. And uh, if nothing else, uh, be lovely if it inspired you to, uh, to keep uh, bringing your mindfulness to everything involved in parenting, 360-degree mindfulness, so mindfulness of yourself, mindfulness of your children, of your extended family, just mindfulness of our society, and be able to kind of 360 degrees, pay attention to the whole thing, and in the middle of all that, um, keep coming back to your heart. And if you can have an open heart that can hold it all, you don't have to drop anything, but you can hold it. And then in that holding, uh, I think you'll find your wisdom and your success with probably everything you do. You don't have to let go of anything, but you can hold it openly, and then you'll know what to do. So uh, thank you.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.